who has a vision to magnify Christ as Lord. Marvelous. And I hope that that will, in a surpassing fashion, be the loudest song in the entire region. And one day it will be of the whole universe. Can you imagine that? You know, I don't know if you've ever heard Philippians 2, 9 through 11, you know, that day when that happens. Have you ever imagined what it would be like when every knee bows? Have you heard the knees hitting the ground? How long will that take? Every knee bowing, you can hear that, can't you? And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Can you hear that? Wow. It would sound like many waters in a multitude, wouldn't it? My, oh my. Let me invite your attention to Matthew 8 uh, and 9. These two chapters we'll look at tonight. And we will go somewhat chronologically, but we'll also have to do some back and forth because I've arranged these two chapters chronologically. Um, as you're turning there, uh, let me give you what we believe are some final prices on the mission trip. Uh, $250 per adult, 75 for teenagers, for students, uh, grades 6 through 12, and uh, 50 for children, K through 5. And we need to deposit by March the 1st, uh, $50 per individual, 100 for a family. If you could help us with that, we would greatly appreciate that. Uh, we are having a meeting, missions information meeting, mission trip information meeting, after uh, the worship service Sunday in the fellowship hall. So if you will anticipate spending, they say 30 minutes, I'll say if you'll anticipate spending 45 minutes after worship, uh, getting some information and signing up for some interests, uh, that would be very helpful. We've got six teams. We've got nine teams, but three of those, they'll already fill up. You, those, they, those take some specialized skills, and they'll get those filled real soon uh, and invite people to be part of those three teams. The other six teams you can sign up for, and uh, you'll be introduced to those Sunday. I really think the Lord is in this. I do. My, my heart is uh, burgeoning and growing in trust and faith and anticipation uh, that the God of mission... Uh, the God of missions is going to be with us. Now, as we look at Luke, uh, Matthew, excuse me, 8 and 9, um, you need to know Mark and Luke cover some of the same material. And you're going to find some differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark and Luke will go into more detail. They will include more details about these stories. Matthew uh, economizes with his words and with his details. He only says what he thinks is absolutely necessary. Now, Mark and Luke do the same thing. But what you have here is that you have three preachers with the same text preaching. And not all three are going to handle the material in the same way. All right? So what Mark and Luke do is that they look at the passage through a microscope. So they see a lot more detail. Matthew looks at it through a telescope. Okay? And uh, so you, you, need, you need to be aware of that. That's why you'll find some differences. Now, these are not contradictions. Shouldn't cause you any difficulty. In fact, I was in a uh, seminar one time on the New Testament, and uh, we were discussing this very subject, and an attorney in the class who was earning his Ph.D. in theology said, well, actually, this is what we would expect of witnesses who were eyewitnesses to the same event. We get very sus uh, suspicious if all their details are exactly the same. They, they coordinated their stories together. Uh, if they are independent and they saw the same thing, we expect some to have details 
are more detailed depending on what kind of storyteller they are, and we expect the other to have fewer details, or vice versa, however it might go. And so they won't be identical, but they weren't intended to be. Matthew is preaching a sermon saying Jesus is king. Mark is preaching a sermon saying Jesus is crucified. Luke is preaching a sermon saying Jesus is servant, and those are the emphasis of those Gospels. John's preaching a sermon saying Jesus is God, and most of his takes place in southern Judea. The others take place in Galilee. So that's why there's a difference in the material. Uh, so don't, don't let that concern you or bother you when you're comparing these particular texts. Uh, also, you, you've got to be aware that the... Um, uh, sometimes in the history, in the background, in the language of the Greek text, you find some explanations there as well. So I'm, I'm not troubled by any of the differences in details, no more than I would be the differences in eyewitness testimony, all of which are legitimate. In fact, now you know why there are four Gospels. There's an Old Testament law that says every fact is confirmed by two or three witnesses. You've got to have two or three eyewitnesses to confirm uh, cases. Well, you've got four here. You've got four. And so uh, uh, that, that's, that's very important. That will be a factor going into this. Now, what you find here in Matthew 8 and 9 is a very activist Christ, very activist. It does remind me that uh, of my um, um, uh, first job, no, actually my second, third job in college. I worked in the parts department at Nile Chevrolet. They did Chevrolets and some GM trucks and Cadillacs. And uh, I delivered parts to body shops and repair shops there in town. And sometimes would travel to Longview. It's a very large dealership, and Longview sometimes had to have parts from us. And we got them uh, to us, uh, even though it was three times larger. It's kind of fascinating how that worked. So it's a big major dealership in East Texas. And um, I, um, after being there a while, I got a big raise. And the next year, I got a big raise. I didn't start quite at minimum, but pretty close. But after a year uh, or two, I was, I was making some pretty good money for a college student. And all I was doing was delivering parts. And, and the, 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 the strange thing was is that other than checking the parts in and checking them out, checking them in when they were delivered and checking them out when I went to deliver them, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't. I didn't. If this had been the 70s, I might have been able to do something with these cars, but these GMs had just become computerized and they were having all sorts of problems with it. And I, I, I really didn't understand the part books. I didn't understand what I was looking for, so I stayed away from that. But my grandfather had taught me two things about working. He said, always keep your feet moving, never stand still. And we had a counter in the parts department and one of the guys would always sit up there when he was not busy and it looked bad and I didn't say anything to him because I wanted the raise <laughs> so I kept busy and the second thing my grandfather told me he said always keep a broom in your hand if you don't have anything else to do you can pick up a broom and that place was nasty it was dirty and all the dirt was filled with oil I don't know how, how it got back in the bins where the parts were, but that, that's what took place. So that, that, what I'm trying to underscore here is my guilt over not knowing what I was doing produced a lot of energy and I stayed busy. And it was appreciated. A good work ethic is always appreciated. And I want to say that about our staff as well. You'd be very proud of their work ethic. ethic. We don't have a lazy person among us. And I'm very, very grateful for that. I suspect our big temptation is not uh, uh, failing to have a good work ethic. I, I suspect the big temptation is unplugging 
when, when we need to. And so we, we have to be careful of that. Well, that's what you find here in Matthew 8 and 9. And I want us to be an activist, busy church. Don't want anyone lazy among us. Laziness is a sin. Proverbs condemns it terribly. And so what we've got here is a church here and a church schedule that is activist in its attempt to reach people. Let me comment on February the 12th. February the 12th, we've got Jerry Vines coming, and we're meeting Sunday morning and Sunday night. Now, don't check out on me Sunday night. Work hard to get every breathing church member and human being in the region here Sunday night at 6 o'clock. Labor hard. It'll be a great service. Dr. Vines will deliver the word. Dr. Vines is, I I think, probably one of the best preachers in American history. And we've got the honor of having him here. Uh, He's done such a good job with his handling of the biblical text that Thomas Nelson, the Christian publisher from uh, Nashville, has approached him about uh, putting together a Vines study Bible. And he's agreed to. In fact, they traveled from Nashville to his home in uh, Cherokee County and uh, sat down with him in his home and asked him to do it. Second thing they're going to do is they're going to publish a multi-volume commentary of his notes on the Bible. If you've ever used Warren Wearsby, Dr. Vines will probably replace him uh, with all of his notes. He's got commentary on every passage in the Bible, and it's going to become a uh, commentary series. And I'm really happy. I've already got some of his books on my shelves with that. Dr. Vines is going to uh, bring the word. He's going to shuck the corn all the way down to the cob. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed getting to know him. And so please labor hard to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, February the 12th. Now, in our text here, we have some of the subjects that appeared in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And the first of these is a, the Lord of the mission, or the Lord of missions. And several ways to describe him. He's a willing Lord. A leper came to him in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and said, If you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus replied, I'm willing, be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy left him. Often, the point of a passage uh, is found in one of two places. This is not always true, but oftentimes, with a passage like this, it's found in one of two places. One, in the dialogue. When you have dialogue in a passage, oftentimes the point is found there. Second, sometimes the point is found in whatever it says about the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. And if the Father, Son, and Spirit appear in the same passage, that's the subject. Well, you have a member of the Trinity that appears here in verses 1 through 4, and it's Jesus. And you have his dialogue here in the text. The point of the passage is, I am willing, be cleansed. I am willing. And so this is the point. He is a willing Lord. Um, Imagine how many lepers around the world have found hope in this passage. Christians were the first ones to establish the leper colonies and make them mission uh, mission posts and mission works. And lepers have found an awful lot of hope and joy in Jesus Christ. I remember... When uh, Michelle and I uh, had a doctor's appointment for one of our children, we had something we were real worried about. We had an appointment at North Carolina Memorial Hospital, which is the teaching hospital of University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And we uh, uh, set the appointment, and we went, and we showed up, and we discovered we were a month early for the appointment. Personally, I think that's doing pretty good. You know, (laughs) show up a month early. But we showed up a month early. Instead of November, we showed up in October. And we, we were, I mean, we were crestfallen because we really were anxious about uh, the, this particular thing that we were dealing with with the child. 
And the secretary said, well, hold on just a minute. Uh, the receptionist did, or secretary, someone. And she went back into an office suite, and in just a few moments, the doctor came out. Now, he was a teaching doctor at the uh, teaching hospital there. And he walked us into an exam room just a few feet away, and there was a chair up against the wall, and he closed the door, and I stood about over here, and Michelle over there, and our child over there, and here's what the doctor did. He sat down. I don't know if I've ever seen a doctor sit down in an exam room. I'm not being critical. You know, I, I really kind of don't expect them to. But this one did. I, they might sit on a stool and ask you to open your mouth. And, and you know, and that, that's okay. I'm not being critical. Doctors. But he sat down and then he was going to stay a while because he crossed his legs. That's exactly what he did. And then he started lecturing us on what he was seeing. And he spent an hour in the room going through a variety of subjects related to what we were talking about there. We inconvenienced him, and he still had an hour because his heart was in to what we were concerned about. He was willing. Can I say something to you? As wonderful as this particular doctor is, he can't touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Jesus' garment, Jesus' willingness far surpasses that of even the best of doctors. Marvelous. He says, I am willing, and the man was cleansed. Then he's a satisfactory Lord. Chapter 8, verse 17 uh, says here, verse 16 says, He healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 4, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The Old Testament provides criteria that the Messiah would have to satisfy to convince others that he was the God's anointed and God sent Messiah. And so the, the, there were large numbers of criteria. Some count up to 300 different criteria. In his first coming, the Messiah would have to satisfy to convince others that uh, he indeed was the Messiah. This is one of them in verse 17. He had to heal infirmities and sicknesses. And he couldn't be like John Wimber from Sunday who said 30% were healed, 30% blessed, 30% nothing. That's not good enough. That's, got nothing. That's not good enough. He had to heal them all. Look what it says in verse 16. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Now the verses above, verse 14 and 15, he healed Peter's mother-in-law and his healing was so extensive she didn't have a period of convalescence afterwards. She didn't have a recovery or rehabilitation afterwards. Instead, she was instantly made well, and that's how Jesus did it. When Jesus raised someone from the dead, they weren't half alive and half dead. They were all the way alive. When he healed someone, they were completely alive. They were completely healed. No need for recovery, no need for convalescence, no re need for rehabilitation. Thoroughly, completely, on the spot, healed as if they had never been sick, as if they'd never been wounded or injured this is a criteria and so jesus met it now she was so she was so uh healed peter's mother-in-law was that she began to serve jesus and his disciples so the lord we declare to the world is the messiah who satisfied the criteria of the old testament of course another word for criteria from the old testament is what prophecy 
he fulfilled prophecy. No one in history can legitimately make this claim other than Jesus, and Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of trust. But there is a uh, third way to describe him. He's a divine Lord. Uh, In verses 23 through 27, the disciples sailed on the sea, a storm rose, they feared, and Jesus calmed the winds and seas. And then Jesus asked them a question that if you don't understand him, you might possibly take offense at. The storm is raised, he's asleep, he's not doing anything about it till they wake him up. He calms the storm, and then he looks at them and he asks the question in verse 26. Why are you afraid? I'd have to be outright. I'd be weak at this point. I'm nearly done. I'm drenched in water, and you're asking me why I'm afraid. I am a seasoned fisherman, and I'm about to lose my mind. The storm is so bad, it scares seasoned fishermen who are accustomed to these things. And you're asking me why I'm afraid? There's a storm out there that nearly killed us. That's where I would be. But to Jesus, the fear under those circumstances was not reasonable. It was unreasonable. When Jesus is in the boat, it makes all the difference. And so he asked them, why are you afraid? And then they asked one another, what kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Listen, that's a good question to ask. I'd like to provide an answer. Just as creation obeyed God in Genesis 1, it obeyed God in Matthew chapter 8. That's who this man is. He's God in human flesh. Paul and Christians since him have not hesitated then to connect Christ and creation. And when they do, it's not unusual for them to connect Christ and creation with the cross. And that happens in Colossians chapter 1. And so when we think about Christ, the creator and the maker, we're immediately to run to the cross. The one who bled, the one who died there is God. Now it's a marvelous mystery, but Jesus had no earthly father, only an earthly mother. His father was heavenly. Well, how does a baby derive its blood type? Contributions from both the mother and father. Is that not right? Okay. So what does that say about the blood of Christ? When Jesus was bleeding on the cross, he was bleeding real blood. Real blood, but there's something mysterious about the death of Jesus, and Paul reflects this in Acts 20, 28. He says, God purchased the church with his own blood. You say, God never had any blood. It appears he did when Jesus was here. And so Isaac Watts wrote, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. The king of creation is also the king of the cross That's who we declare, and we do it in gratitude to the world on mission with Christ. He's an authorized Lord as well. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, he announced forgiveness for a paralytic who trusted him. It's rather remarkable what takes place here. The man shows up, and he's paralyzed. So much so, four friends have to carry him. It's not a mild paralysis. I mean, it's enough to where he's got to be carried in by four friends, and they're so desperate. Mark will say they tear up the roof to get him in. That's what takes place. They bring the paralytic to him, and Jesus sees their faith, the faith of all five of them, and the man's paralyzed. Now, now the man is paralyzed. 
And Jesus says in verse 2 of chapter 9, Son, be of good cheer. First, I'm going to heal your paralysis. It's not what he does, is it? He says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Oh, man, you can hear the cranky crowd in the background saying, Boy, he's just getting a little bit too spiritual. He's always doing evangelism. My goodness. Always preaching the gospel. Talk about forgiveness of sins and going to hell. Jesus puts the eternal needs of this man first. Now, this is combustible because the scribe said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now, they say it within themselves. They don't vocalize it. They combust inside. They're real fidgety. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say arise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he looked at the paralytic. Arise, take up your bed, and walk. You see, Jesus was authorized, empowered, to forgive, not merely to announce forgiveness, but to actually forgive someone for sins that were not done against him in his flesh. So he could do the invisible act of God. And to prove he was authorized to do the invisible act of God, he turned and did the visible act of God. To show he could forgive, he raised this man and returned his uh, walk back to him. And so the reason Jesus is able to forgive others their sins that they've not personally committed against him in the flesh. The reason he's able to do that is that he himself is God and he validated it by raising this man up and allowing him to walk. And so Jesus has the authority to forgive sins the world over. He does this in the Middle East. He can forgive the voodoo of the Caribbean. He can forgive the ancestor worship in Africa. He can forgive the terrorism in the Middle East. And he can forgive the abortion and other sins in America. He's also a clean Lord. He's a clean Lord. Physically, I'm sure that's the case, but we're talking about ceremonially clean and clean before God. Chapter 9, verses um, 18 through uh, 26 are really two stories. Uh, Jairus comes... Uh, a synagogue official that Mark and Luke will tell us is J. Iris, come to um, Jesus and say, my daughter's died, please, come, come. And Jesus goes on his way, and a woman who's had a hemorrhage problem for 12 years comes to him, and without letting anyone know, just comes up and touches the hem of his garment. Jesus feels power leaving him, and he turns to the woman, says, who touched me? Well, he knows who touched me. He doesn't need information. He's clarifying it for her. And so he, um, he says, who touched me? And she trembles before him. And he says, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Or actually, your faith has saved you. Is what's happened. In the meantime, Jesus continues on and goes to the home of the, of the uh, synagogue official. And the synagogue official has done what most Jews would do. Already, the family has hired professional mourners. They would stand outside and start mourning and wailing. And uh, they were real good at it, whether they were sincere or not, and to announce to the community that uh, someone had died. And then flute players would begin to play the flute. And uh, they would uh, wail uh, as well when they had opportunity. 
Well, Jesus walked up and said, wait a minute, what are you wailing about? The girl is not dead, she's merely asleep. Because when someone dies, Jesus handles that with as much ease as waking a little girl from her sleep. And he goes in, and he does this. Now, uh, he goes in, touches her, and raises her up. Now, look at verse 20. In verse 20, the woman with the hemorrhaging, the 12-year hemorrhaging, look what it says. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. With that, she just made Jesus unclean, ceremonially, according to Leviticus. Uh, 19. And then look at verse number 25. He's with a little girl. When the crowd was put outside, see, they didn't trust and believe. They ridiculed him, so he wouldn't let them see the miracle. When the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. When he took her by the hand, he was made unclean. In fact, the law prohibited touching someone who had a flow of blood. And the law prohibited a human from touching a corpse. Humans were prohibited from those things, but God never was. So Jesus is doing this not in his capacity as a kind and gentle and compassionate man. Jesus is healing this woman of the hemorrhage and raising this girl from the dead, not in his capacity as man, but in his capacity as God. God was never prohibited and never prohibited himself from touching the unclean. And so Jesus is thoroughly willing and capable and justified in forgiving anyone that's unclean. Then in the second place, there's the extent of missions. We've got in chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, the faith of Gentiles. Uh, We looked at that this past Sunday. And what we find is that Jesus prioritized salvation by grace through faith. Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he prioritizes salvation by grace through faith. And then he undermines false senses of security in verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom, a synonym for the Jews, will be cast into outer darkness and there will be the weeping, emphatic, and the gnashing, emphatic, of teeth. And so Jesus prioritizes salvation by grace through faith. And that's not merely an obligation on part of the world. It is. Jesus commands faith in himself. But it is a gift. It is a gracious thing that all we have to do is trust Christ for salvation. Then there is the haunt of demons that indicate the extent of the uh, of missions. Verses 28 through uh, 34. <clears throat> here we have... Um, here we have... Uh, Uh, the ministry that Jesus performed in exercising demons from men at uh, Gadara in chapter 8. Gadara was predominantly Gentile, a predominantly Gentile region. And Jesus knew that in Gadara, he would most likely come into contact with Gentiles. He comes into contact with two wild ones. They're filled, permeated, marinated in demons. Jesus cast them out and they ruin a hog farmer's hog operation of 2,000 head is what they do. And so Jesus comes and battles the swine, battles the demons and expels them from the man and was not intimidated by the worst of cases. Uh, And so he was, um, in fact, the worst of cases is described in chapter 8 verse 28. When he'd come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men. Now watch this coming out of the tombs you've got to have some gumption to live in a tomb because there are dead bodies in there that's where they buried their people 
exceedingly fierce. They weren't just fierce, but you need an adjective to emphasize. They're exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Okay, this is off limits to ordinary humans, and Jesus goes right at it. He goes right at it. He's the one that runs into the burning building. He, he jumps into the fray. He's not intimidated. He wants the worst and most difficult case. <clears throat> so whatever you find on a mission trip, Jesus is thoroughly, thoroughly capable of handling it. Then there is uh, the principle of receptivity. In chapter 9, verse 32 through 38, we find some interesting commands here. In verses uh, 32 through 38, Jesus does uh, a a number of miracles. Uh, Verse 32 through 34, he takes a demon-possessed man who is made mute and silenced by demons and heals him. And then um, he um, continues on in verse 35 through verse 38, um, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. Now, in chapter 9, verse 30, he also heals two blind men. And look what he tells them in verse number 30. See that no one knows it. What's similar to what he told the leper back in chapter 8. Look there, chapter 8, verse 4. See that you tell no one. This outrageous good news takes place, and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Now, he's not playing reverse psychology here, hoping they will. He really doesn't want them to tell anybody. He doesn't. This kind of statement occurs 13 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 13 times Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Now, by the end of the Gospels, he's saying, go tell everyone. Earlier, he says, don't tell anyone. And in some specialized assignments where he had served and ministered, he told his disciples to go preach, but only in those places where he had proceeded and preached himself. So what explains this unusual command, don't tell anybody? Most commentators will tell you that they think that the... Uh, people of Israel were so misguided about the kingdom and the nature of the king that if Jesus built up too much enthusiasm, they would hijack his mission and turn it political and make it what they wanted to be. And they really attempted to do that in John chapter 6, verse 15. They tried to rush him to the throne after feeding the 5,000. So he followed that in John 6 with a very hard sermon and split the crowd and, and eliminated those who weren't on mission with him. He made his crowd smaller, but it was more pure and focused on his mission after feeding the 5,000. That's what he did. Um, I I think there's some merit to that, but I think that Jesus actually explains this a few chapters later in chapter 13, verse 11. It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, he says, but to them it has not been given. Not everyone has the capacity to understand the mysteries of the kingdom or the knowledge of God. And it's not just a matter of age. I have known teenagers who soon after conversion had more insight into God than some that had been in church for 30, 40, and 50 years. David would say in Psalms 119, I've become, I'm more wise than my teachers. Why? Look at verse 11 again. It's been given to you. It's been given. That's the divine passive. God has given to you to know. 
but to them it has not been given. Understanding the word is not a matter merely of human uh, mentality and intelligence. It is a matter of God unveiling himself, and he doesn't do it to everyone. Why? Verse 12. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Mark will elaborate on this in Mark chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. He'll say, quote Jesus, where Jesus said, Be careful how you hear, for to him who has, he shall be given more, and he'll have an abundance. To him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. It's possible to attend church and be to experience spiritual atrophy increasingly with every Sunday. It's no guarantee of growth. Why? Because not everyone does what Jesus says. Not everyone is careful how they listen. You've got to come before the Word of God careful to listen with the intention of obeying. And as I explained about a year ago, that's why we put that little box on the back of the worship guide about action plans. It is one of the most important and necessary and urgent spiritual discipline and exercises to come with the intention of obeying and doing something with what you hear. If you don't, you'll lose what you've already known. You won't get what you heard and you won't keep what you have gotten. But if you will intentionally implement the word of God, you'll get more. And that's what's taking place here in the text. And so... Jesus didn't want these fellows to go tell the world quite yet because Israel was not ready to hear it. They weren't receptive and they weren't going to be careful until Jesus died on the cross and rose again and defined his mission in the shape of a cross. Then they would understand that their biggest enemy was not Rome. Their biggest enemy was themselves and their own sin. Then the mission would be defined. Jesus defined it in terms of the cross and resurrection, and he did a pretty good job because that's how we define it. What a remarkable thing. Well, that guides our own mission strategy. That's why I'm wanting us to go to Latin America, which is a harvest field, which is far more receptive than most places in the world. At the same time, we have the opportunity to reach an unreached, unengaged people group that we hope is receptive. If they're not, then we've got the Guatemalans. So this is guiding our mission strategy. Well, the, I, I need to go quickly through the rest of this. We've got a uh, video we want to show you about the mission trip. But they're the agents of mission, verses eight, uh, 18 through 22 in chapter 8. Jesus' demands for discipleship were exacting. He expected disciples to locate personal comfort in family uh, relations under his lordship. Uh, personal comfort in family relations never trump his lordship, and Lottie Moon knew that. She spent 40 years in China and only came back home three times for less than a year. She was engaged to marry a seminary professor at Southern, and he went liberal, and she broke it off and died lonely, malnourished, sick, and lonely. She knew something about that. But, my goodness, little, little woman from Virginia, we still celebrate her. Matter of fact, did you know that she used to teach south of Athens? Yeah, yeah, she did. Uh, the room where she used to stay at a house is still standing, and the church is still there. Then there's the command of missions, uh, make disciples of all nations. Matthew, in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, 
uh, begins to follow Jesus and can't help it. He just gathers his friends at the house, and they're all tax collectors and sinners. They're a rowdy bunch. You walk in, it smells like cigarette smoke. You smell, they got beer on their breath and all sorts of things. And he pulls them together, and they have what some have called a Matthew party. And um, they, uh, uh, so, so Jesus, um, Matthew, gets them in close proximity to Jesus by hosting his friends and associates and Jesus in his home. Now, when the Pharisees saw this, they challenged it, and Jesus intervened and said, what I'm doing with sinners and what Matthew is doing with sinners is a whole lot like what doctors do with patients. Uh, I mean, if, if doctors can't stand patients, they go broke. Well, in the kingdom, this is what we do with sinners. And so you can't, and, and I just need to remind all of us, you can't evangelize the world from a distance. You got to get up next to them. You got to open your home. You got to get across the table from them, at least in a restaurant someplace. Fellowship with them, eat with them. You can't isolate yourself from the world. Jesus didn't. Like a doctor, you got to get in close proximity with uh, the others. And so that's precisely what Jesus did. Then in Matthew, and then the message of missions, chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Let's read this. Then the disciples of John came to him and said, See, you got a little trouble from John's disciples too. Not John the Baptist, but John's disciples. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them three things underscoring what I call the doctrine of appropriateness. Now look here. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Well, no. You're at his wedding for crying out loud. Don't start crying if you're a fella. That's not what you do. It's not appropriate for the attendants in the wedding to start crying tears of gloom and sorrow when you're at your friend's wedding. You don't do that. It's not appropriate. Then, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Well, the new cloth shrinks and tears the old garment. It's not appropriate to do that. Then, nor did they put new wine into old wineskins. It would ferment and burst the old wineskin is what would happen. So it's not appropriate to do that. Jesus is teaching the doctrine of being appropriate. So in order to walk faithfully with him in mission, and we'll have to have this same mindset when we go to Indian town and locally. In fact, I would encourage you to memorize the Gumby Beatitude. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. You've got to do what's appropriate to Jesus. You've got to fit the mission. You've got to fit him. You've got to reorder and adjust your life for him. So Jesus taught his disciples that they must accommodate him in appropriate ways. This means sometimes gloom is not appropriate, but joy is. Sometimes something new is not appropriate, but something old is. Sometimes something old is not appropriate, but something new is. And I'm going to paraphrase a Michael uh, Cat tweet from today. He said, Peter did not use your distortions of the gospel. The Apostle Paul did not use your translation. And David did not use your music. Get over it. And he's right. You've got to be entirely flexible before the God of mission because he is Lord and we are not. It's terribly, terribly important. So Peter, Paul, and David did what was appropriate to God's lordship, commands, and his mission. And we'll learn more about that during our tentatively scheduled mission trip training uh, day, May the 7th. All right? 
Well, we expect a marvelous time in uh, Indian Town this summer, and we have got a video to uh, show you. And uh, please come Sunday after church to the Fellowship Hall for any questions or comments or anything that you need. All right.